0: You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, A Place for Thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, A Place for Thinkers. I'm Daniel Roberts. I'm your host. Today, we are going to be talking about natural law, the definition of man, God, the state, totalitarianism, libertarianism, Christianity, all that good stuff. But before we get into that, I need to ask you a favor. I need you to go onto Apple, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcasting platform is and share it out with your friends, family, pets aliens on other planets, whatever it is that you share to on the interwebs. Leave a five-star review. That helps us out with the search engine stuff, even though I feel like it's rigged anyway. But regardless, leave a five-star review. Nice little comment there to make us feel nice and prideful and struggle with sin. That'd be great. Otherwise, You can contact us at mail at solomonscorner.com. If you have any questions, mail at solomonscorner.com, or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Telegram, and you can post your questions there as well. So we've been going through this book, Maritan, Christianity and Democracy and the Rights of Man and the Natural Law, as a kind of theme generator for this podcast, and we have gotten past the idea of Christianity and democracy and just as a recap, Maritan believes that in order for society to really flourish, in order for it to not be able to get into a barbaric state, a regression, so to speak, is only going to happen if Christians, specifically Christians, do not recognize their God-given obligations to live the gospel out in their cities. And this precedes the section on, what is man's responsibility to the state and to god and in order to get into that discussion we first have to ask the question well what is man and there's a big debate throughout all of history about whether or not you you may have heard this but whether or not you should listen to man's word or god's word and either one of these positions the atheist who says man's word is supreme and is the only one to be listened to and the Christian who says only God's word is supreme and therefore is the only thing to be listened to ultimately ends up minimizing the complexity and nuance of what man is, as we philosophers like to say, metaphysically composed, or how he is put together. What man is, is he is a soul divided. He's a, he has one foot in heaven and he has one foot on earth. And This is echoed in Scripture itself, and there's just a couple of verses here that I think are important to, to go over out of, out, of this, out of Scripture in order to show that even the Bible presumes that there is this dichotomy in man. He, he isn't merely spiritual or merely material. He is a spiritual material being. He's a little lower than the angels. And so what does that mean for him in terms of his morality, in terms of his obligations, and what we see first and foremost that Christians or anyone who wants to say that there's something above the state, deists might fall into this category, would say that you should obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 says this, but the plot thickens because there are other Bible verses that seem to indicate that man is subject to the political authorities. And so in Jeremiah 29 7, for example, he says, Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for the city, for as it prospers, you will prosper. And we'll see later that Maritan echoes this point as well that there is something about the common good that elevates all of us. And so while this may be in the Old Testament, somebody might say, ah, but Daniel, that's the Old Testament. Old law, we got a new law. Well, just in case you were curious, this theme also recurs in the New Testament. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of authorities, but also because of your conscience. And just to mix it up even further, in case somebody's like, ha, see, you have to just do what the government tells you to do because that's what you're supposed to do. Well, we could then take this passage here, which would make us all very uncomfortable if it was used in the same way Romans 13 was used during COVID. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And Paul echoes that again almost exactly the same in Colossians three, twenty-one through twenty-three. The passage I just quoted for you is Ephesians six, four through six, which leads into this idea of a spiritual war that we find ourselves in. And so on the one hand, the Bible seems to be indicating there are these political authorities that we are subject to. But on the other hand, we're also supposed to be a being whose first and foremost command is to love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And even Jesus said the second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Well, that's the question that not just the, the Jewish religious leaders were asking, but that's a question we're all asking at all times. And so. When we look at the city, and when we look at our obligations to God, we find that man is not just metaphysically paradoxical, but his experience with the with reality seems to be paradoxical. Is he to love God or the state? And the answer is, in typical unsatisfactory philosophical parlance, it's both. And so we continue into this theme in the scripture. Is there something else that we can use other than revelation or just brute reason or whatever conception I want to have about what's good for man and what's not good for man, and just make my own little libertarian paradise on the laws that I think are most important. Is there something that transcends governments? Is there something that is true for all people, all places, and all cultures at all times That gives man justification to submit as well as to peacefully declare the truth when governments go awry, and that is called natural law. So, I intentionally quoted Romans and the Ephesians passage because it highlights that revealed truths presume that the reader has another revelation, the revelation of God's created order, also known as natural law, or in Maritan we'll see It's the unwritten law. And this is not merely an American idea. This is not something that the founders cooked up in 1776. It's been around for thousands of years. It's been around in multiple cultures. Norm Geisler, the founder of the seminary that I attended, in his systematic theology, states that belief in natural law did not begin with Christians. Natural law is also found in ancient Hindi. Chinese, Greek, and Roman writings that predate the time of Christ. Even before Socrates, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus believed in an unchanging logos, reason or truth, behind the changing flux of human experience. Plato held to moral absolutes, and the Stoics developed natural law theories well before the first century. And Maritain echoes this. So we not only have a Protestant who is declaring this, but we also have a Catholic. The idea of natural law, Maritan says, is a heritage of Christian and classical thought. It does not go back to the philosophy of the 18th century, which more or less deformed it, but rather to Grotius and before him to Suarez and Francisco de Vitoria and further back to St. Thomas Aquinas, and still further back to St. Augustine and the Church Fathers and St. Paul, and even further back to Cicero, to the Stoics, to the great moralists of antiquity and its great poets, particularly Sophocles or Antion, is the eternal heroine of natural law, which the ancients called the unwritten law. And this is the name most befitting to it. And I want to focus in on this unwritten law, because this seems to be echoed in Scripture as well. These are not just merely things that are conjured up by man, they're discovered by man, and there's a very important difference between making something up, like Tolkien making up the hobbits and, and Gandalf and the dwarves and the whole Lord of the Rings saga, versus actually discovering something true. The distinction being, it would be very much more significant if I discovered a real hobbit versus actually just making up one. And so we'll find in Scripture, this unwritten law is clearly stated in Psalm 19, one through 5. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays His handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals His greatness. There is no actual speech or word nor is its voice literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon." This is the natural law, the unwritten law, that has been discovered by other cultures. Now, some apply it better than others, and Christians rightly argue that it's best applied within a theistic or Christian context, and this is the argument that Meritan is going to make. And so what is man? The title of this podcast is Man, a Soul Divided. Now, you can't, in strictly philosophical terms, and you'll just have to indulge me for a minute because I enjoy this kind of stuff, and it's my podcast. So, man, soul is simple, and it's not, that means that it's not capable of being divided. And even though there are passages in the Bible that seem to imply this, Those passages are highly metaphorical, and so we don't mean this in a soul literally able to be divided. And even if it is actually theologically possible for God to divide man's soul, it would obviously be something that would be worse than death. So when we say man, a soul divided, what we're merely doing is speaking analogously to the fact that man is both a material or an animal who has spiritual capabilities or rationality. He is an animal who bears the imago Dei, and the thing that distinguishes him from the animals is his ability to see the fingerprints of God within creation and make discoveries about the truth of God and the truth of himself and how he relates to God and how he relates to his neighbor. Those things are capable of being known without special revelation, although. Revelation, as Etienne Gilson says, a friend of Maritain, another French philosopher I highly recommend and will definitely be covering later on this year on the podcast, says that while you don't need revelation, it oftentimes provides you a shortcut. And what we just demonstrated is that it clearly does. You don't have to have a philosophy degree, and that is a prerequisite of natural law. You don't have to have a philosophy degree in order to understand moral laws or natural obligations, or even your responsibility and obligations to God, or that there's a supreme being out there that you owe your life to. Those things are not required rationally or required by revelation. However, what is required by revelation is the who is God. But as, as we see, you cannot have a who without a what. And so what we believe about God, what we believe about man, what is man, what is God, these things are the attributes that inform us about the nature of who we are, the nature of God, and that informs us about the kind of person we are. And this is easily demonstrated. A criminal and a saint have the same human nature, but obviously that nature determines what kind of person they are because the criminal has veered away from his nature and the saint has tried to come closer to it. And so the same thing is true of, well, if God's nature is wrath, if God's nature is love and mercy, and then we come to know those things, as Romans says, through the created order, Paul says, for since the creation of the world God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. And if that is the case, then when we decide to seek the nature of God, we seek the divine, even though we don't know who he is, when that revelation is brought to us, it is even more impactful and even more powerful. In the same way, when we meet someone who is an exceptional human being, we realize what kind of heights and what kind of person we can all become and that person ends up becoming even more significant so what is man he is a soul in a body he is a spiritual material being and to divorce him from his body is to make him less human and to only consider his body is to remove the divine image in him and so we have to as christians in our moral distinctions in our judgments about what man is we have to understand that he is a soul connected to a body whose obligations are both to god and to the state and so what are these two kingdoms that we find man tethered to one is obviously the kingdom of heaven and the other is obviously the social or political and one might be saying well what if my city is 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 going in a direction that i don't prefer. What if I think that it's morally wrong? Or on the other side, people might say, "Well, you know, Christians just need to practice their religion privately. They just need to understand that, you know, God's got it all in control and we don't really have to say anything. He's just going to let his spirit kind of move around and convict people as as he goes." But this is where revelation comes in. Because if we were to just say, "Well, you know, I've got a natural law, but there's nothing in a natural law that says that I might have to say anything. I mean, I can do it or, or not, but I don't believe that I'm morally obligated to say anything. Yet, Scripture tells us that the role of a Christian, and Christians are held to a higher standard, even though that standard is intended for all men, once we become Christians, it is the standard that we are to live by, along with the natural law, we see in Ephesians 6, that Paul says, Finally, strengthened, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this is the reason... Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm therefore by fastening the belt of truth around your waist. And he goes on to describe the rest of the the armor of God. This idea of a spiritual battle is clearly based in the ideas that come against God's natural law and his divine law. And Christians are supposed to speak out for both. They are supposed to call people to right living, and right living is both in accordance with the natural law as well as with the divine law. And sometimes we do make mistakes. It's not that we are in belief that just because there is objective truth that that people necessarily attain it every single time. But the issue of today's day and age is not that men are attracted to relativism, but that they reject authority. They know in their hearts that they can't actually live in a relativistic world, or else they wouldn't be able to challenge those who say that truth is objective. Their real issue is, is well, who are you to tell me how to live? And it's easier to question than to live according to the truth. And this is famously recognized by Pontius Pilate's, what is truth? Or in the Christian who decides to be willfully ignorant because he believes that if he's willfully ignorant, he's not culpable of not living according to the truth. But truth, as we saw in the Psalms, echoes throughout all of nature. And the man who chooses not to seek truth is condemned by the fact that he chose not to. And so that's a much worse state than to seek truth and to fail. And so later on Paul also says that we tear down arguments, and arguments are clearly concepts that might be or acts of reason that would set themselves up against God. This is throughout all of the text. And so that means that even with things like abortion or things like gay marriage or things like transgenderism, you won't be able to find a verse that says you cannot be transgender. You'll see things that will say, you know, man and woman, he created them. But again, this is because the text presumes that there are truths that you are getting from the world, that the world is knowable, and that when you experience the world and you come to the text, you discover something about yourself and about the nature of the political establishment and what it should be living towards. And so, Maritan comes in and he says Man is a political animal, which means that the human person craves political life, communal life, not only with regard to family community, but with regard to civil community and the commonwealth insofar as it deserves the name, is a society of human persons. Society is a whole whose parts are themselves wholes, and it is an organism composed of liberties, not just of vegetative cells it has its own good and its own work which are distinct from the good and the work of the individuals which constitute it but the good in this work are and must be essentially human and consequently become perverted if they do not contribute to the development and improvement of human persons and so the question before us right now is well then where what do we do with the rights of man what does it look like when the state decides that they're going to truncate man's divine image. Well, that's totalitarianism or communism. And Meritán has a good description of this as well. He says, The human person is something more than a part with respect to society. Here is another principle which Christianity has brought to light, and which every absolutist or totalitarian political philosophy relegates to darkness. A person as such is a whole, open, and generous. Indeed, if human society were a society of pure persons, the good of society and the good of each person would be but one and the same. Yet man is very far from being a pure person. The human person is a poor, material individual, an animal born more poverty stricken than all other animals, even though the person, as such, is an independent whole, and that which is noblest in all nature. The human person is at the lowest level of personality, stripped and suckerless, a person destitute and full of needs. Because of these deep lacks and in accordance with all the complements of being which spring from society and without which the person would remain, as it were, in a state of latent life, it happens that when a person enters into the society of his fellows, he becomes part of a whole, larger, And better than its parts, a whole which transcends the person in so far as the latter is a part of that whole, and whose common good is other than the good of each one and other than the sum of the good of all. A single human soul is of more worth than the whole universe of bodies and material goods. There is nothing above the human soul except God. In the light of the eternal value and absolute dignity of the soul, society exists for each person and is subordinate thereto. So it is very clear that man. Is tethered to two kingdoms, the earth and his heavenly destination. But that doesn't answer the question of what we're supposed to do in the meantime. Well, I think Maritain gives a, a good argument to say that we should be fighting the extremes of political systems like totalitarianism or anarchical libertarianism. We should make sure as Christian intellectuals, that the world that our children are going to inherit is one that does not veer into totalitarianism or extreme self-indulgence. We should not believe, like some Christians do, that whatever the state says, we're supposed to do because, after all, Romans 13. On the other hand, we also do not want to be Christians or intellectuals who say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow Jesus comes back. So we must find this middle ground between the two, and Maritain has a section called Totalitarianism and Personalism. But before he gets into that, he talks about the intrinsic morality that is meant to govern societies. He says, another characteristic has to do with the intrinsic morality of the common good. Which is not merely a set of advantages and conveniences, but essentially integrity of life. The good and righteous human life of the multitude. Justice and moral righteousness are thus essential to the common good. That's the good of the city, like Jeremiah 29.7 we read earlier. That is why the common good requires the development of the virtues in the masses of citizens. And that is why every unjust and immoral political act is in itself harmful to the common good. And politically bad. We also see how because of the very fact that the common good is the basis of authority, authority when it is unjust betrays its own political essence. An unjust law is not a law. And this is important, especially for, for Christians, because what Maritan is arguing is that the foundation of the Christian life is also the foundation of the common good and those Christians and and theists out there who believe that religion can be relegated to a private chamber in their house, or a private room in their house, didn't mean to go all medieval Victorian on you, But but the idea that it can be relegated to a private life is just not taught in Scripture, and it's not sorted out in human history, that when Christians are silent on what the moral law is, that societies are elevated. It's the other way around. Societies are elevated when Christians call men to account to be virtuous, and to stand before God as good citizens. And so the question before us is which is better, totalitarianism or personalism? How do we fight these two things? And this is what Maritain says, the entire human person is also above political society. There are in him things, and the most important and the most sacred, which transcend political society, and which raise the entire man to a position above political society. This same entire man, who is part of political society by virtue of still another category of things. I am part of the state by reason of certain relationships to common life, which call my whole being into play. But by reason of other relationships, Things more important than common life, there are in me gifts, rights, and values which exist neither by the state nor for the state, and which are outside the spheres of the state. And so, right now, if you look at our current discourse, you have, on the one hand, and you can just go on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you want to go to see this stuff, you see that there are people who are saying, we need strong-armed government in order to bring about what's right. And on the other hand, you've got people who want to run away from the problems that we're in. Maybe it'll just all blow over. Both of these concepts are dangerous. First of all, the idea that one can run away from his problems is just not bore out in history, nor is it necessarily even a virtue. Man does have to know when to run and when to stay, but the idea that, the idea that we can just always run away from the problems that we face, is not an option in the political idea. But on the flip side, we have things within us that we can't allow the state to trample. And so because man is this composite, because he is this being who is both matter and spirit, he is a constant reminder to the state that there is something above the state and that the goods that the state is supposed to preserve ultimately point To the authority that the state is accountable to, and man reminds him of this, especially if he is religious. And this is one of the reasons why totalitarian regimes aim to extinguish the light of faith. So Maritan also says, though, that we are indebted to some of these states because maybe we benefited from them, for example. A good example of this is the idea of education. Many of us may have gotten our jobs that we have today because of the education we were given, even if it wasn't the greatest education. If you can read today, it's most likely due to a government-paid teacher who taught you how to read or a teacher somewhere else who taught you how to read. In some way, you are dependent indirectly on the goods that the state provided to your teacher to provide you with the ability to read that was able to get you to where you are today. That's a simple example, but another example would be mathematics. Suppose that somebody gets a degree in mathematics and they get a nice scholarship at a state-funded school. Well, this would be something that he would not have been able to attain on his own. He was able to attain it because he was in a classroom with other like-minded individuals in a plurality, in a system that finds itself as a part of the, ba- of the greater whole, that this educational institution provides him with the resources necessary to attain something that he he's made to attain because it's ultimately transcendent. Mathematical truths or any kind of truth are ultimately true not because the state says they are, but because they are true in and of themselves. And so, Maritan says... If a man were to pursue mathematics, it would be wrong for the political community to suddenly tell him what these mathematical truths are allowed to be and what they're not allowed to be because these truths transcend the state. And he says this, On the other hand, man transcends the political community by reason of things which in him and of him depend as to their very essence on something higher than the political community. Thus, mathematical truths do not depend upon the social community and relate to the order of absolute good belonging to the person as such, and the community never has the right to require a mathematician, or a doctor, to hold as true one mathematical system or biological system in preference to another and to teach such mathematics as may be judged more suitable to the law of the social group. For example, Aryan mathematics, or for instance, Marxist-Leninist mathematics. And I, inclu- I added in the biological sciences as another example in that quote. But what we find here is that if we, if we drift towards a totalitarianism that says, you will fulfill the virtues that Christianity says to fulfill, we will end up crushing the human spirit in a way that God did not intend. And Maritain gets into that as well. He says explicitly later on, and we don't have time to get into it, but he says explicitly later on that it would be wrong to provide the Catholic Church, even as the true religion, because he believes he's, as a Catholic, he believes it's the true religion, it would be wrong for a state to give them a partiality in relation to other religions because it would end up affecting the common good as a whole. And so... There are limits to the goods that the state can even extend to religions, even if they are the true religion. Because ultimately, we, as the followers of that religion, are responsible for its virtues and for its gospel and for the ethics that we are supposed to infuse into society. It's not supposed to come at the point of a sword, it's supposed to come at the foot of a cross. And so, in closing up here, the question becomes what are we? Supposed to aim at? Whose responsibility is it to aim at and fight this darkness? And one of the things that C.S. Lewis talks about in one of his novels is that we misunderstand sometimes who's responsible for the spiritual war. That this this darkness that creeps in, that this this world and this heaven that we have a foot in, that seems to uh, we have a foot in both, and it seems to be that our soul is divided between the light and the dark, and that this world is constantly trying to segregate those two things, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. What we find is that this spiritual war is not supposed to be fought by famous people. It's not supposed to be fought by the Ben Shapiros and the Elon Musks of the world who got red-pilled or whatever you want to say. It's meant to be fought by godly men and women who are willing to communicate, even upon suffering and I don't like that part any more than any of you do. But that we would suffer not just for the gospel, but for the moral law that is the foundation of it. And this happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist challenges Herod on a sexual ethics matter and is imprisoned. He's married the wrong person. And this is, for those who may not know, this is not a homosexual relationship. This is just a relationship that's not ordained by God. There are a lot of Christians today who would say we should just stay out of these kinds of affairs because they don't really matter, they don't really affect me, just let me live and I'll let you let me be and I'll let you be and we'll just tolerate each other. And there's truth to that to a point, but when it becomes the moral law of the society, when the society decides to reject God's moral law in exchange for a lie. That negatively affects the common good. And as Christians, we are supposed to will the good of the city. And so even if we're just an ordinary person, we have an obligation to be not just lights of the gospel, but to be lights of the, the unwritten law, to shine a light on the unwritten law that everyone knows is there because we fail to attain it daily. And in doing that, we don't only call men to live virtuous lives, we call them to repentance because they won't be able to do it perfectly. And it's in this dynamic that we find the answer to our question. Are we to serve God or the state? Well, like Jesus said, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but the second command is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the foundation of both of those commands is to seek the truth and to live according to it, and in judgment of that truth about man or God, seek wisdom, and when we error, seek and accept the mercy that God offers. It's going to be messy. That's why Paul uses a spiritual war metaphor. There are dangerous ideas out there, and casualties do result from them. But we have to keep in mind that God put us here for this time. He made us the being that we are specifically to engage in these kinds of affairs of the political, social, and temporal. And He goes to prepare a place for us in the perfect kingdom. And so even if engaging in this spiritual fight leads to physical persecution or difficulty or challenges or loss of job or loss of family, we can do that knowing that God can redeem those things as well. And so, I know this was a deep podcast. This was a challenging one for me to get through. But I challenge you to go and do a little philosophical experiment on your own. Try and write out what you think man is, what his obligations are to the state. Make arguments to yourself, not because you want to impress your friends or you want to win a debate. But write out what you believe man's obligations are, because he has them. And so what you think those obligations are, argue for them, fight yourself on them, write them out with pen and paper preferably rather than ADD, Coca-Cola, and a keyboard and monitor. Use a pen, use some paper, write it down, and then reflect on it and see what you think. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We will be getting more into natural law and its implications in the coming weeks as Maritan dives deeper into that and as it is foundational to the intellectual life and the challenges that we find. So I hope that you continue to listen. I hope that you subscribe. I hope that you review and like and share, 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 share share this podcast with all your friends. And again, keep thinking.